welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Well, we started a couple weeks ago this series. I, I continue to say I think it's my favorite entitled series that we've ever done, Imaginary Gardens with Real Toads. This idea that we've been exploring different parables, these imaginary worlds Jesus sets up, these imaginary gardens in the language of the series title, in which there are real things, substantial things, things that are alive and that can have an impact on our lives. And Nick read from Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. You might want to flip that open. We're going to spend the bulk of our time in that passage and considering these words from Jesus uh, in that teaching. But before we get into it, I want to just say that every now and then, read something that Jesus is saying, and there's only one of two conclusions I can come to. Either he's on to something, meaning he's found something he's trying to offer to us that is leading us into a certain path that he wants us to go and ultimately we want to go. So either he is on to something or he's on something. It's almost like there are times there's words he's saying Teaching he's setting in front of us, and he's either on to something, and we should take notice, or he's on something. He's either like crazy, or he's compelling, because he's inviting us into something that is true, but maybe hard to wrap our minds around. Well, I think today's parable, and his teaching in it, is one of those things. He's either on to something about life, about discipleship, about who God is and who we are in him, or he's on something, because the things he says are really out there. So we're going to kind of jump into it with that in mind. We recently bought a car from what turned out to be a not-so-reputable source. And as I was at the place, and I'm sort of circling the car, and I'm looking at it, and I'm trying to decide, should we or shouldn't we do this, right there it was, plastered on the window, this piece of paper, and in bold print it said, as is. Uh, Well, when I was finalizing the paperwork on the purchase, I was talking to them, working on how much, sitting down with the finance person, and this individual kept reminding me, now remember, you are buying this car as is. That should have been a clue to me, or a parade of red flags. As is means what you see is what you get, and what you don't see is also what you get. As is means there could be some things needing repair or renovation, things that you can see, other things that are unseen, things that look obvious, others that are not so obvious, things that you know, other things you don't know. But there could be some things needing repair and renovation. And if there are, in our case, when there are, the cost of these repairs, the cost of these renovations is on the buyer. I learned the hard way through this process, as is, also means the condition of the car and what they've purported to do to the car to get it ready to sell could be very different from the real condition of the car or from what they actually did to get it ready to sell. So we can lie, apparently, and if I don't catch it, oh well, as is. But I digress, my bitterness is coming out, so I think I'll move on from that. Since buying the car, we have discovered, indeed, as is means additional costs. The car has flaws and imperfections. 
things broken in it that are big, others that are small, things needing repair and renovation, some seeable or you can see it with your eyes right at first glance, other things that weren't obvious or seen but have become unavoidable. And as you know, renovations and repairs are costly. So camp on this concept of as is for a moment. Jesus invites all of us into a relationship with him as is. We come as we are, flaws, imperfections, things broken in us, big and small, some things that need renovation and repair, some things we see and know, other things we don't see and don't know. His grace invites us as is. But if we choose to respond and follow him, if we choose to be his disciple, his follower, if we begin to realign ourselves and our lives with him and his way and his purposes, we do not stay as is. The slow and often painful process of renovation begins where God begins to work on the as-is parts of who we are so we become more and more the people of God. And in today's parables, Jesus is simply making sure we understand there is a cost to following him. Or using the title of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's famous book, The Cost of Discipleship. Verse 25 says a large crowd was traveling with Jesus. Traveling is an interesting word choice, and it evokes a certain imagery in our minds. Jesus' popularity was rising. Many by now had heard of him. Undoubtedly, some in the crowd had seen him perform a miracle. Word about him was spreading The buzz was growing. The hype was growing. People were jumping on the bandwagon. Groupies were joining the crowd, pumping their fists. Every time Jesus talked, they were nodding their head and maybe shouting an amen or two. The crowd was getting larger. And as is common, as was common, Jesus responded to all this hype and all this buzz and all this growth rather unexpectedly. He thinned out the crowd by teaching them the cost of being his disciple. He reset people's expectations of who he is and what following entails. This is Jesus doing what he so often does, turning things upside down, flipping things on their head, revamping people's expectations, correcting assumptions, setting forth, in this case, a vision of authentic discipleship and setting forth an authentic picture of the cost of following him. He does this through two short parables. A parable about building a tower, a parable about a king going out to war. Back then, people built towers, not unlike they do today, to in one case to store stuff in or in other cases to overlook their property. In the case of someone who owned a vineyard, build a tower so you can see the whole vineyard from the height of the tower. Cities built towers as kind of a place to be on the lookout for danger. And Jesus says in Luke 14, when you build a tower, won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay a foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you. So he's talking about starting the project without considering the cost to finish. War was a well-known reality in those times. He says, won't a king about to go to war sit down 
and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? Won't he take some time and sit down and do the math? Won't he reflect a bit on what am I about to enter into here? What is this going to cost me? What's this going to cost others? Won't a king do that? And in this case, part of the story is the king discovered the risk was too high, so there was only one move to make, and that was to negotiate peace, or let's say it this way, to surrender. So Jesus uses these familiar images to urge the crowd, remember he's talking to the crowd, to reflect on the cost of discipleship and then decide whether or not they want to sign up for this rigorous journey. And this is when things start to get either Jesus is on to something or he's on something. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. In verse 27, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And then in verse 33, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. Now, I just rock back from this like I just got smacked in the jaw. I mean, that's some woe kind of teaching. You know, slow down a bit, Jesus. Where's the chill, Jesus? Not here. There's just no uh, backing off. There's kind of a demanding cadence to this. It sort of makes a stop. Again, he's either onto something, because who says this kind of thing, or he's on something, because he's losing it. But nonetheless, it makes a stop, makes us think about this. And I think this is Jesus' purpose in his teaching, that the crowd would stop and consider who this guy actually is. He's resetting their ideas about who he is and about what following him, or our language might be, about what being a Christian is all about. He's trying to slow the hype of the crowd and make sure the terms are clear. So as I read this, there are a few questions that begin to form from this passage. Questions about life, questions about our discipleship. Who are we a disciple of? Questions about what it means to live Christian. And I want to take the rest of the time to kind of pose these questions and reflect on them just a bit. I, I would encourage you to kind of reflect on it for yourself as we think about these parables and these four questions they raise in our minds. The first question is, do I really want this? Do I really want what Jesus is talking about here? This phrase, sit down and consider, gets us in that mode of, do I want this? Have I thought this through? Do I know what I'm signing up for? You build a tower and you sit down and you estimate the cost. You take an army to battle, you sit down and you consider the cost. You buy a car, especially one that is as is, and you really need to consider the cost and the costs, because they're coming too. You start a thousand-piece puzzle. Sit down and consider. Now, this is going to take up room in the apartment. Where are we going to put this? It's going to take time to do this. It's going to take effort to do this. It will be frustrating when we keep trying to put this piece there, no matter how hard we push, it doesn't go there. It doesn't fit. And working on the puzzle will keep us from being able to do other things. And we need to sit and consider this before we embark on the thousand-piece puzzle. There's a cost involved. 
sit down and consider before jumping in. Pausing to consider the cost, consequence, and implications of this or that decision is common in our lives. We do this all the time. And Jesus here is teaching us to bring the same kind of thoughtfulness and intentionality into our life with him. Because living Christian, discipleship, is not a sign right here kind of arrangement. You know what I'm talking about. You go refinance a house, you go buy a car, you go take out a school loan, whatever it is. You, the person, that, there's that mood in the air, that, that mode that the person who's conducting the signing gets into and the mode that we get into. And the mode goes something like this. They've got a stack of papers. They shove one in front of us. They give a brief summary. Here's what this is. Sign right here. Here's what this is. Sign right here. I ain't even thinking about it. They could be saying, you just, you know, I get your dog. Sign right here. Sure. I get your car as is. You bet. Sure. You just get going in that mode and you're not even thinking. Well, when we come down to this whole idea of living Christian or discipleship, I just want to say it's nothing like this. We're not just signing up once. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's great. Okay. I've heard but Yeah, I'm good. Disciple, good. Okay, put that away and get on with my life. It doesn't work like that. Jesus is speaking provocatively when he sets forth what seem like conditions of discipleship. He says, if these are not met, you cannot be my disciple. Three times this sort of haunting phrase, cannot be my disciple. He's talking to a crowd and he's sifting the non-disciples out of the crowd by setting forth the terms of real discipleship. Again, this is pretty heavy stuff. Not much chill here from Jesus. So hear what he's saying to us. I think we can whittle it down to this. He's saying, remember what you're signing up for when you decide to follow me. Now, he's not threatening here. He's not yelling. He's not trying to bully us to get our act together. I don't believe for a second he had facial expressions or anything else that was intended of shaming people to get their act together. But we might hear teaching like this as though he is yelling at us. Or that he's just kind of disappointed that we're not doing enough. Some of us read passages like this this way. I hear it this way. Not doing enough. Not surrendered enough. Push harder. Do more. All those kinds of voices in the head. But when we think like this... When it comes to what Jesus is inviting us into, when we think of it like this, we are taking what we think and how we think and we're projecting it on God, which is never a wise thing to do. Even so, Jesus' teaching here is worthy of our time to sit and consider, reflect on it, and remember. Discipleship to Jesus rearranges our primary loyalties, our first loves, our priorities. Discipleship reorients my heart away from me and on to him. My desires, my preferences, my will, my agenda, the as-is part of me, in other words, gradually over time becomes his. It's a long process. It takes time. It's incremental. It's not instant. Jesus frames life in his kingdom around him. Mike frames life in Mike's kingdom around Mike. And following discipleship is about Mike surrendering his agenda 
letting go so God can renovate all this as is in me. And the first question is, do I want this? I'll speak for myself. I want God's forgiveness. Who doesn't? I want his peace. Who doesn't? I want good things to flow into my life. I want a good marriage and I want a good relationship with my children. And I want to be with God forever when I die. I know I want those things. But do I want to carry my cross like Jesus carried his? Verse 27 says, unless you carry your cross, you cannot be my disciple. Do I want to carry my cross like Jesus carried his? Here's my first response. Yikes. Well, that doesn't sound like the road to success. And yet, if I don't carry my cross, Jesus says, I cannot be his disciple. So this question, do I really want this? And that's the weird thing about this apprenticeship to Jesus thing. It's like there's a paper, there's an agreement we have to sign. Back in the mode, okay, sign here, okay, yeah, okay. There's a paper, there's an agreement we have to sign or not sign. But the paper's there every day. The agreement's in front of us every day. In fact, the agreement is in front of us multiple times on any given day. Do I want to be Jesus' apprentice in this particular situation? If so, sign right here. That's going to drive a response, a reaction. That's going to drive how I am uh, when something's going on. Do I want to be Jesus' apprentice in my marriage when my wife does or says something that annoys me? If so, here's the paper. Sign right here and then walk it out. Do I want to be Jesus' apprentice when it comes to money, when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to uh, faith in the workplace? Here's the opportunity. Here's the paper. Do I really want this? If so, sign right here. This is going on all the time. Do I really want to live this way? Where he and his agenda take priority over me and my agenda. Do I really want this? It's the first question. Here's the second question. Who is my teacher? You are a disciple of someone. You are a disciple of something. The question for us to be asking these days as it relates to living Christian and being a disciple of Jesus is who is my teacher? It's a really important question for us to be asking ourselves these days. Who teaches me? To whom have I given authority to shape my views and shape my values? Whose school am I enrolled in? In other words, who is my teacher? Disciple is a good word, but it may be a stale word. As you know, overuse tends to wear words out. Student gets at the same meaning because a disciple is someone who learns from Jesus how to live in his kingdom in everyday life. Apprentice is even better. Apprentice captures the essence of what it means to be Jesus' disciple. An apprentice plumber, for instance, starts by fetching tools and watching a seasoned expert at their craft. Asks this seasoned expert some questions. Learns by watching what the seasoned expert is doing. Learns by experimentation as the apprentice tries some things. An apprentice plumber does some work and then interacts with the expert plumber 
and receives feedback. So an apprentice has an ongoing and interactive relationship with the expert by which the apprentice grows in their knowledge, experience, wisdom, and ability. And over a long period of time, the attributes and the skills and the way of the expert gets reproduced in the apprentice, and this apprentice then lives it out in their unique way. See, apprenticing to Jesus in the trade of life is the essence of Christianity. Apprenticing to Jesus in the trade of life is the essence of what it means to live as a Christian. And this apprenticeship is costly. Time, attention, intention, the will, our effort, perseverance, and probably many other costs. So I want you to feel this next thing I'm about to say. I don't want you to think about it. I want you to feel it and see what it does to you. See how it bounces through your being just as I say this next thing. Jesus is the leading expert on how to live in the year 2021. In everything we are currently experiencing, Jesus is the number one ranked coach, advisor, guide, and teacher. I wonder if I believe that. I wonder if we believe that. He is the expert on how to navigate a pandemic the kingdom way. He is the expert on how to love enemies and relate to those who disagree and who are different. He is the expert on how to reconcile a broken relationship. He is the expert on how to live in tense, angry, and divided times without being tense or angry. He is the expert on how to have a healthy marriage. He is the expert on how to raise children in this bizarre, if not insane, world. He is the expert on how to process through loneliness. His life, his example, his teaching, his power are at work in his people to reproduce Jesus' character in us and shape how we live in the year 2021. I ask again, do I believe this? I'll ask us. Do we believe this? Who is my teacher right now about life? People say, well, Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my Savior. Well, in today's world especially, the big question is, is Jesus my teacher? I mean, it creates a real problem. It's actually just like a logical inconsistency. When people who claim Jesus as their Lord, which is pretty much as high on the org chart as you can get, then respond or react or think or feel or act in a way that clearly shows that Jesus is not their teacher. I mean, how do those things work? If he's actually Lord, then by, de- by definition, he's going to be my primary teacher about life in 2021. So that other inputs I receive on important topics I hold before Jesus and before others who are following him to discern the kingdom way because I want his way more than I want my way. So Jesus is my primary teacher. He's my main teacher. Let's put it this way. He supervises all the other teachers I have, so I need to bring what they are saying to him and hold them in an open hand because he is the world's leading expert on life in the year 2021. What does that mean? That means we learn 
from Jesus the teacher about marriage. We learn about what to do with our past and the pain that happened there. We learn about sin. We learn how to navigate politics from Jesus. We learn how to deal with money and material things from Jesus. We learn how to become people who do not have anger in our bodies from Jesus. We learn about divorce and what that does in the course of a human soul or of a family, and we learn it from Jesus. We learn about fear. We learn about anxiety. We learn about sex. We learn about sexuality. We learn about disappointments in life, and we learn these things from Jesus. So who is our primary teacher on these things? For the follower of Jesus, the follower of Jesus says, Jesus is my teacher. So I follow him and learn about these things from him. Third question, who or what defines me? It jumps out of this. Who or what defines me? In Jesus' time and really in every time, the family is supposed to be the place where a person finds love, value, identity. In Jesus' time, like in our time, family connections were crucial identity shapers. Generations lived together cared for each other, celebrated births, grieved deaths. One's honor as a person came in large part from one's role and identity in a family. So being ostracized, rejected, kicked out of a family created this intense shame then and sometimes now. So family was and is a place of primary loyalty and a source of primary identity. When people thought, who are my people? Who am I most loyal to? Who will I do anything for? Answer, family, especially in first century culture and in our culture. It's hard not to be defined, at least in part, by your family. Well, in this passage, Jesus redirects and resets an apprentice's identity and loyalty. He says in verse 26, compared to your love and loyalty to me, your love for family and spouse and kids and self His words is to be like hate. He's either on to something or he's on something. He's redirecting loyalties. Primary allegiance is no longer just to relatives, but to Jesus. Identity and value is no longer derived from family only, but from Jesus. He's not saying, hate your family. He's saying apprentices of Jesus now receive their identity from him. His unfathomable love is the source of our identity and the priority of our loyalty. Our love and our devotion is to him above all else. So the question, who or what defines me? Verse 33, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. What? Those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. He's either onto something or he's on something. Give up in this verse literally means bid farewell. I like that image. Say goodbye. Bid farewell to everything or you can't be my disciples. See, living Christian, following Jesus, this isn't a sign, the form, yeah, 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 yeah. Living Christian, following Jesus, changes our allegiances, our loyalties. It changes where we derive our identity as human beings. It changes where we get our value as a person 
who or what defines us. We bid farewell to those things that have defined us and have secured us and had made us feel like we mattered. We bid farewell. So we bid farewell to the identity-giving necessity of our family of origin. There may be some good things there that we retain, but that does not, that is not our primary source of identity. We bid farewell to the path of achievement to try to earn identity. We bid farewell to the road to success to try to earn identity. We bid farewell to our status in life. Where do we fit on the various pecking orders? We bid farewell to that as a source of identity. We bid farewell to this idea that we need to be important or we need to be liked or we need to be needed. We need to have an impressive title or a big bank account. These things are part of the everything we bid farewell to as the primary source of our identity and value. So today, as Nick said, is our youth pastor Alyssa's 27th birthday. It's also Larry Lawton's 60th birthday. Don't worry if you don't know who he is. And it is our youngest daughter's 24th birthday. Little Izzy, the balsamic beezer, Usa Verde. She's 24 years old today. Woe is right. Woe is me. Woe is right. It's amazing. 24 years old. She was born in California. The only one of our kids who was born in California. And she's 24 years old today. Let me tell you something I see constantly from my chair as a pastor. And I've seen this for all 30 years of doing this. doesn't matter if the age of 24 is in front of you or behind you. You can be 14 or you can be 74, someone who has faith or someone who doesn't. People of all ages and backgrounds are questing to find their identity. An identity that doesn't wobble when life hurts. People want to know they matter. They want to know they're okay. They want to know they're loved. They want to know they have value. And stuff happens in this life that makes us wonder about those things. Our identity gets challenged. Our value is rattled. A painful relationship from our family of origin can rattle our identity. A bad experience in our past can challenge our identity. Am I loved? Do I matter? An unfulfilled dream can make us think we're a failure, and it's difficult to feel valued if you feel like a failure. An unwise decision might have had a whole domino effect of implications, and sometimes it's hard to feel like you matter or that you're loved when you've made unwise decisions that have sent wreckage everywhere or some kind of deep rejection that happens early in life. Or maybe just a chronic heaviness of soul because we feel like something's broken in us. Something is off within us or wrong with us and it will never be made right and we carry this sort of stuff around. This is the as-is part of our identity. Apprentices of Jesus bring all of this to him for renovation. We follow him. And along the way, we find a new identity in him and in the family of God. Our identity is in him and in his great love for us. This is our words. It's not a slogan. It's not on a refrigerator magnet. It's not posted on our windshield. It's not in our favorite book when we open it. It becomes a truth about us. Our identity is in him and in his great love for us, and there we learn to rest. 
we learn to breathe. There we learn in Christ we have been brought to fullness. And we are able to rest and breathe in that space. Who or what defines me? For the apprentice of Jesus, the answer is he does. His sacrificial love for me defines me. I am now his beloved son. I am now his beloved beloved daughter. And I begin to live from the strength of this place and take life on from the strength of this identity. So I want to ask you to close your eyes for this last question. This is the fourth question for us to think about as it relates to discipleship and living Christian. And here's the question. What is the cost of non-discipleship? We've all probably experienced this. The cost of choosing to not follow Jesus in a particular way or in a particular issue. What is the cost of non-discipleship? See, the cost of not following, the cost of not apprenticing, is that we miss things like love, joy, lasting peace, steady patience, routine kindness, a heart that overflows naturally in goodness. We miss the wonder of faithfulness. We miss the power of gentleness. We miss the beauty of self-control that God created in us, creates in us over time as we apprentice with him. There's a cost to being a disciple. There's a greater cost to not being a disciple. So this profound thing Jesus says in verse 33, anyone who doesn't give up everything cannot be my disciple. Well, giving up everything, bidding farewell to everything, starts by bidding farewell to to one thing. So let me just ask you in a moment of prayerful reflection. Think about giving up everything. You go, wow, it's so overwhelming. I think I'll just walk away and go have brunch. If I think about giving up something, bidding farewell to something that I hold on to, that keeps me from apprenticing to Jesus. What might that be? Holy Spirit, we pray for your guidance, for your wisdom, as we continue to seek to be your followers, wherever we are along the journey. Give us the courage and the understanding to know what you might be inviting us into next, how we might give up one thing on the way to giving up everything. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.